man in a suit with short grey hair stands proudly at a lectern in the centre of the shot. He's flanked by four men, awkwardly looking forward towards the camera. Behind him are a number of senior military figures in battle fatigues. Just off the centre of the shot and right at the back is a flag, hanging limp due to the lack of wind, but you can spot the colours, yellow, blue and red. It's the flag of Colombia and the man standing in the middle, ready to address the nation, is President Ivan Duque. Colombianos, me dirijo a todos ustedes desde el emblemático Fuerte de Tolemaida. Quiero informarles que se ha adelantado una operación conjunta, articulada y meticulosa, con el nombre de Operación Osiris. Y en esta operación ha sido capturado Dairo Antonio Usuga, alias Otoniel, el máximo cabecilla del clan del Golfo. As he utters the words Dario Antonio Usuga, alias Otoniel, the picture double boxes. On the right, we see a picture of four heavily armed masked soldiers standing either side of a man who looks to be in his 50s. Average height and bald, he was dressed all in black, including a t-shirt with Die for Success emblazoned on it. He was also handcuffed and frankly looked quite miserable. And it was him, Otoniel, Colombia's most wanted man, the leader of Clan del Golfo. In the moment he was finally captured by special forces, it was reported that he simply said, you beat me, before being taken away. Whilst being taken away, of course, there was time for police and special forces to take selfies with the infamous drug trafficker. Otoniel had been hunted for over 10 years and the Colombian government had finally got their man. So President Duque wasn't going to miss the opportunity to play to a global audience by claiming the arrest was only comparable to the fall of Pablo Escobar. solamente comparable con la caída de Pablo Escobar en los años 90. Alias Otoniel. Era This is Deep Dive from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. I'm Jack Megan Vickers. And this is Clan del Golfo, The Fall of Otoniel, Part 3. You beat me. In the first two episodes, we tracked Otoniel's ascension to the top of Clan del Golfo, a position he assumed after the death of his brother Giovanni. Then we also looked at the group itself, some of the markets they're involved in and how they clean their money. Of course, we know about this armed strike he called in response to Giovanni's death, a show of strength that also made Otoniel a target for law enforcement. And that target would only get bigger as he promoted something else, Something that harks back to Pablo Escobar's war on the Colombian state. 
Otoniel had leaflets distributed that offered $500 for every officer killed. Otoniel now had a $2 million bounty on his head. This would later rise to $5 million. In 2015, the targeted search for Otoniel, the biggest manhunt of its kind, called Operation Agamemnon, began. And it was led by SearchBlock, the same unit that was set up to track down Escobar. Just a year after Operation Agamemnon started, that moment in history happened, the demobilization of the FARC. Now, there are two strands to this. Firstly, when the FARC left the areas that were once under their control, areas where there is a lot of coca cultivation and illegal mining, groups like Clandel Golfo expanded quickly to fill the void. But secondly, it was after the demobilization when the army and all their expertise in the rural parts of Colombia joined the hunt for Otoniel and the senior leadership of Clandel Golfo. It was called Operation Agamemnon II. Here's Jorge Mantilla, the Director of Conflict Dynamics and Organized Violence at the Ideas for Peace Foundation and a member of the GI Network. So the, the process of this operation, military operation that was named Agamemnon had two, 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 two stages, Agamemnon I, Agamemnon II. So through the last five years, there was a huge military deployment, occupation of these territories. They were not able to capture Otoniel for different reasons, maybe corruption, information leaks, but throughout the process, they start hitting the structure or the, the main structure of this Clan del Golfo, also known as Autodefensas Gaitanistas de Colombia, AGC. You know, because as I told you before, this group had a narrative, but the way they related to the territory, to the population, was not very clear in every region. Over the first two years of Agamemnon II, over 1,000 members of Clan del Golfo were arrested, 52 suspects were killed in combat, and 94 metric tons of cocaine were seized. Alongside weapons, millions of dollars, assets worth hundreds of millions, 81 laboratories, and they destroyed a couple of landing strips as well. One by one, the senior leadership of Clan del Golfo were beginning to be taken down. El Indio, Galivan, Inglaterra, and of course Messi, who we heard about in the last episode. Then a number of Otoniel's own family were captured, including his wife, but also his sister, who was recently extradited to the US to face charges of drug trafficking and money laundering. The net was beginning to tighten around Otoniel. Here's Toby Muse, foreign correspondent and author of the book Kilo, Life and Death Inside the Secret World of the Cocaine Cartels. By the time he was on the run, because he really becomes the public enemy number one from about you know, 2015 onwards, and the CIA make it known that they are working with the Colombian authorities in order to try and track Otoniel. So, you know, he was at the top of all of these international agencies. 
We understand his life was miserable, that he was in Urubah, I should also say, is one of the wettest zones on the planet where it rains more than uh, more than the majority of the planet. So it's this jungle with constant rain and Otoniel constantly on the move, that he would spend one night in a place and then the next night he would have to be moved on to the next one, always trying to keep uh, one step ahead of the police. The police by this point had launched something called Operation Agamemnon, after the famous figure of the Trojan War, if I'm not wrong. And so his he was just constantly on the run. We understand he had up to eight levels of uh, rings of security around him. All of the civilians in the zone had been told that they needed to uh, alert the organization to any sighting of of government police or uh, soldiers, that they would try to launch these surprise raids, trying to find him. But, you know, you can hear these uh, helicopters in parts of the jungle. You can hear them coming from kilometers away. And so it was very hard to get the jump on them when they were such masters of that terrain. So um, it was a, it was a strange life for a man who could be worth in the billions traveling around this rainy jungle on the back of a donkey. Cocaine, I say in the book, has an ironic, has a sense of irony, has a bitter, cruel sense of humor that you're worth billions and this is your life, just wandering around on the back of a donkey every day. You know, you have all of this money, but what are you, what are you spending it on? Otoniel, a man worth hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars, was spending his days in Uraba, traveling constantly from village to village by donkey with a small group of bodyguards, with little opportunity to run the day-to-day -day operations of his organization. Here's Jorge Mantilla. So at the end, at the very end of the days of Otoniel, he was just kind of separated from the group. He didn't have communication. He, did, he was not able to perform command and control. So here we could say that from two years or three years ago, Otoniel was the main figure in Clan del Golfo, but maybe he was not that decisive in the everyday life, logistics, and operations in the drug trafficking operations of Clan del Golfo. So when it comes to the impact of you know, the capture of Otoniel, we could say that it, it could bring fragmentation among different factions of, of, the, of, the, of the clan, of the cartel, but the drug trafficking operation is probably not going to be affected because Otoniel was not involved in the details, in the logistics, in the architecture of these operations, which is the main financial asset of Clan del Golf. Not the only one, but still the main one. So do you remember back in the first episode, we heard that Otoniel had been in a couple of organizations that had been demobilized. First, the EPL in 1991, and then later the AUC in the mid-2000s. Each time, the leadership of these groups had come to an agreement with the Colombian government, which allowed them to lay down their arms and re-enter society, often with little or no repercussions. But the Colombian government barred backroom organizations from peace talks. 
they were simply not recognised as a politically motivated group. And back in that first episode, Angela Oyeya said that she believed Otoniel, despite his involvement in criminal activities, believed he was fighting a political battle. So Otoniel attempted to get peace talks to agree an amnesty. Here's Toby Muse again. And I would, I would expand it, even take it beyond just getting to the top. The constant I found in speaking to every stage of the cocaine industry when I was researching my book and interviewing these people, the constant I found was people had reached a certain point and they all regretted getting into it because cocaine is the ultimate handshake with the devil. The deal is you get into the world of cocaine and you can have the opportunity, there's no guarantee, but have the opportunity to have as much money as you want to have that famous actress as a girlfriend, to drive that sports car, to have that apartment in Miami. But the deal in cocaine is you're not going to live very long. You know, and that's really the deal, that you'll have the potential to have all of this. And I meet people who all regret it. They've had all of the benefits of this life in cocaine, but they can now see that the end is in sight. And that applied to this interview with this contract killer who may have killed hundreds of people in his life. He deeply regretted getting into it, but he knew there was no way out for it. A drug trafficker I interview, you can tell he's regretting it. And this becomes the ultimate kind of, and again, it's in a kind of storytelling aspect, I find it fascinating. They all try to cheat the devil. All of these traffickers, and in this goes back to Otoniel as well, they all enjoy all of the benefits of being a drug trafficker. Then when they see, aha, uh -huh, well, perhaps my time is coming to an end, they try to renegotiate the deal. So what does Otoniel do? Otoniel then in around, uh, I think it's 2017, puts out these videos where he's standing and talking straight to the government in one of the videos. And he says, I want to negotiate a surrender. He puts out another video addressed to the Pope saying, please help us uh, negotiate with the government this surrender. He's saying, look, you know, we uh, because of the peace process with the FARC, now we want to hand ourselves over. They're trying to negotiate in a way that what he wants to do is he wants to spend a few years in prison, pay off a few millions, but get to keep his money and get his criminal record uh, washed clean. So it's this kind of renegotiating these deals, which I think is fascinating. Also, we should say just in a sign of Otoniel did not look particularly healthy. You could tell his skin hadn't seen the sun for months on end, and he's living in this sunburnt area of Colombia, but he's constantly in huts. He's constantly in the jungle. So, you know, he looked kind of sickly. He was suffering from some health problems as well, which I think made it even easier for the police to eventually track him. But it did take them years. Thousands of members of the organization were killed or arrested over a hundred police and soldiers were killed in the ongoing operations trying to take him down. And it's amazing to see this video. Otoniel is there in full military fatigues, black boots, red armband, reading from a sheet of paper. At some point, he obviously gets tired and sits down on a camping chair. He's addressing Pope Francis, who just arrived in Colombia for a visit, and he was saying that his organization were men of God, respectful of divine law, 
He asks the Pope to pray for their purpose of laying down arms and that they are peasants that had to take guns. It's a fascinating look into his mind. And looking at that video, it's prime example of actions speak louder than words. And given what we know about Otoniel and Clan del Golfo, it's hard to take the air of contrition seriously. And so let me counter his words to the Pope with a very specific story about a dog, a beautiful German shepherd called Shadow, who happened to be an incredibly good sniffer dog. Dos, tres minutos de la tarde, una perra, una perra, se convirtió en el principal dolor de cabeza de uno de los narcotraficantes más buscados del país. Alias Otoniel ofreció una millonaria recompensa a sus hombres por asesinar al animal que ha evitado la salida de decenas de kilos de cocaína del capo. Here's Toby Muse. So the story of Shadow is she's a German shepherd and she was working on the ports of the Caribbean coast and she had found this shipment of cocaine that was worth something like $30 million. And the police said that they had intercepted some uh, communications between members of the Gulf clan, which said that the boss, Otoniel, was so furious, he had put out a contract potentially of $70,000. It's not clear if it was $7,000 or $70,000, but one of those figures to kill Shadow, to kill this drug detecting dog. To me, that was a sign of the utter insanity of the war on drugs. When you get to the stage of you are hiring professional assassins to try and kill a dog like it was Charles de Gaulle and it's Day of the Jackal or something, you've completely lost your any sign of mental, any mental sanity that you ever had. And yes, Shadow was taken away from that port. She was immediately evacuated to uh, Bogota to live in the center in to live at the police headquarters, essentially, which is, you know, um, you can imagine how protected that is in a country like Colombia, where car bombs used to be very, very common and attacks on police outposts are uh, could be very common. And there's Shadow. So I spent actually the day with Shadow in her new job, working in the airport in Bogota. And she just detected in front of us, uh, I think it was like four kilos of cocaine that someone had been trying to send out inside these, it was like these huge metal screws. I'd never seen anything like it. Imagine a screw kind of like the size of a book. I, I, I can't even, I just don't even know what it would be used for, maybe like building a bridge or something. It was this huge screw and inside was cocaine. And it's constant. It's when you get to that airport and it was, this is a cargo warehouse where they were checking all of the packages leaving Colombia, trying to check. Obviously, they can't check everything. But you understand how constant this flow of drugs is out of Colombia. And there's Shadow just sniffing all of these packages as they go by her. And yep, she detected right in front of our eyes four kilos of, uh, of cocaine. The police understood that they had this kind of amazing story on their hand of this hero dog. So in only the way of kind of a Gabriel Garcia Marquez Macondo kind of story, the dog is invited on to like the top top chat shows. And so there's these images of the dog sitting on a on a seat as it's being interviewed by a chat show host. The dog is given a medal. Andrea, muchas gracias. Y en nombre de los hombres y mujeres de la Policía Nacional, Estamos aquí presentes mostrando el trabajo articulado del hombre, el canino de la Policía Nacional en las diferentes... This isn't the only dog story surrounding Otoniel. 
Apparently he trained some beagles to bark and howl whenever they saw someone in uniform. I guess as a sort of early warning system. Anyway, when the police turned up at one farm looking for senior figures from Clan del Golfo, the barking dogs perhaps gave them the chance to escape. But they left the dogs behind, so the police took them and then retrained them and they're now drug detecting dogs. As the years rolled on, Otoniel was constantly on the move, using a network of rural safe houses. He stopped using phones, instead using couriers for communication, fearful of venturing too close to any towns or cities for fear of capture. As the game of cat and mouse continued, the police found that Otoniel was living a sparse existence. The homes he stayed in had very little, but they did have orthopedic mattresses due to back problems. Eventually, Signal's intelligence from the US and UK joined alongside their Colombian counterparts to pinpoint his position. It was time to go and get him. Operation Osiris, named after the ancient Egyptian god of the underworld, was ready to go. It involved 22 helicopters and 500 members of Colombia's special forces who entered the jungle to find Otoniel. President Ivan Duque called it the biggest penetration of the jungle ever seen in the military history of our country. And so we come back to that announcement on the capture of Otoniel by President Ivan Duque, when he said, only comparable to the fall of Pablo Escobar. A statement clearly for the international media, but also strangely similar to that televised announcement we heard in episode one, when his predecessor, President Juan Manuel Santos, said the last of the great capos had fallen when Daniel El Loco Barrera was captured. Ha caído el último de los grandes capos. Fue capturado en San Cristóbal, Venezuela, alias El Loco Barrera. That was nine years earlier, and we're here again. So Otoniel and Pablo Escobar, can they really be compared? Here's Jorge Mantilla. There's no point of comparison. I mean, Pablo Escobar died in Medellin, you know, in the middle of a combat or engagement with authorities. Otoniel was captured in a very small village, kind of close to the Panama border. You know, he was caught with four of his men. <laughs> he, he, he's the, the main leader of a huge cartel. But when it comes to his reality, everyday reality, he was just with four of his men in a very small village, uncommunicated. So I think this, this is not the 90s, right? Colombia has performed, has gained a lot of capacity, has gained territory. It has a huge, huge, let's say, contested areas and, and groups are very important. And we have... Uh, huge challenges in terms of organized crime, in terms of armed conflict, in terms of violence. But I, I, I would say that there's no kind of territory in Colombia where the state, at least the military face of the state, 
cannot arrive and say like, hey, here I am, right? For Pablo Escobar, Cartel de Medellín was very, very different from the formation of Clan del Golfo. Clan del Golfo is more a network, you know, whether the Cartel of Medellín was a classic cartel with a leader, with a very clear kind of structure where orders were, you know, top to down. And, and, and Clan del Golfo is more like an everyday bargaining thing where criminal factions ally or not uh, in terms of, of their interests, in terms of their illicit economies, in terms of territorial assets. So, so yes, it, it's, it's much more the president talking to the media and trying to say uh, it's a big goal in a context where the, the public safety policy through the last four years has not been that successful. The capture of Otoniel was an example of the kingpin strategy, which has been going on for decades. The idea of decapitating the head of a criminal organization. We saw it with Escobar, El Chapo, even Daniel El Loco Barrera, who we met in episode one. So remember when the president called El Loco the last of the great capos? He was quickly replaced by Otoniel and his brother Giovanni. I guess my question is about the kingpin strategy itself. Can it be considered a success given that another person always seems to step up? Here's Angela Oyeya, the co-founder and senior researcher at the Conflict Responses Foundation in Colombia. Well, I think this government especially don't have a very clear security strategic. So what they are doing is copying some elements of other security strategics to assume the fighting. But I think they are they are trying like to to improvise something and they are they are already doing it for three years. But they don't have a clear strategic security strategic. And this relationship with the drug trafficking is because this call the media attention, this call the numbers, and this is to, to show the numbers, to show how many areas do you eradicate, how many areas you, you, you see the coca crops went down. But at the end of the, the day, it's because they don't, they don't read the armed groups in a very appropriate way. I'm not sure if they have the ability because this political fighting between this government and the government who did the peace process is bringing us a lot of uh, consequence, bad consequence. And definitely they, they are not trying to, to do something. They are trying to show something. Yeah, so it's almost like it's for the media and the wider population to show you're, you're doing something, even though... If you look at it from the bigger picture, it might not necessarily make a massive difference. No, definitely not. If the difference is doing it, it's in a very wrong way, in a bad uh, way, because they are fragmentating the groups. So they are affecting the security of the communities. They are fragmentating these, these groups, but not eliminating them. And... With this, I will say that this happened with the capture of Otoniel. The, the, the President Duque say that with the capture of Otoniel, they already eliminate the, the AGC 
and that's not true, <laughs> actually. He said exactly the same with the caparrapos that were a very local armed group that were fighting with the AGC, and the caparrapos are still going on in the in their areas. Not that that is strong, but they are still going on, and it depends of how they play their cards to see if in one year they are still fighting or definitely they are absorbed for other group or something like that. But it is no that they eliminate the group. And that's, that's like the logic that the government is using now. And that's where the limitations of the current kingpin strategy are clear. These groups often continue. The production of cocaine is at a record high. Illegal mining is destroying more and more land. Violence is pervasive. Here's Jorge Mantilla again. So we are very aware of the limitations of this strategy. It has been around for a long time. Multiple names and leaders, you know, have been captured, have been killed. But GTOC, just kind of one month ago, uh, this criminal or this organized crime index still shows Colombia in the second place. So I, I think the efficiency of this strategy is, is, is very contested in terms of what are your priorities in terms of, of public safety and in terms of security. You want to kill and capture people or you want to protect communities. And the Kimpin strategy is not very related to the protection of communities, you know, to less homicides, to less extortion, to less drug trafficking. So this is a problem that relates not only the approach, the strategic approach to organized crime, but it also involves, for example, the, the war on drugs, which Colombia has fought for two or three decades and still remains as the first country in the world in terms of producing and exporting cocaine, for example. And then you have the groups themselves. Does the removal of Otoniel actually make a difference to the day-to-day -day operations of Clan del Golfo? Angela told us in the first episode that they operate a sort of franchise system, which means it's already decentralized. So to say that the removal of Otoniel, who is the last of the leadership who had that original paramilitary reputation, is perhaps too simplistic. And just a side note here, in March this year, a guy who is reportedly one of the most senior members of Clan del Golfo, called Juan Castro or Matamba, who was in jail awaiting extradition to the US, was seen on CCTV, dressed in a prison guard uniform, strolling out of La Picota Penitentiary in Bogota. The only living thing that seemed to notice was this little dog, and you can find all of this online. Now, the reason why I'm telling you this is because he allegedly runs one of their franchise cells called Cordillera Sur, down in the southern region of Nerino, bordering Ecuador. So what does come next? Will there be a single individual who takes over the reins, like Matamba? Or will we see a fragmentation and all the issues that come with renewed competition over drug routes and other illicit markets? I don't think there's going to be smooth transition we don't really know if there's going to be transition, you know? I think I think that the, the main question is that one. And and he's like, where are we at? 
in terms of Clan del Golfo. Like this is the end of the brand Clan del Golfo. I don't think so. I think they're going to maintain the brand, you know, the name, because the name has reputation. And you know that in, in the underworld, uh, reputation, it's it's an important thing, right? <laughs> you need to be not only be a bad guy, but you need people to believe you are a bad guy. And Clan del Golfo has that, has reputation in those territories, in their geographic core in the Golfo. Maybe in other parts of the country that are are far from their geographic core, you know, or rear guard, we would see just kind of separation, the emergence of new groups that happened back in 2017 when a faction of Clan del Golfo separated from the group, creating the Caparros in a in a in a in a region uh, close to close to El Golfo. They fought a war. So we can see that in some regions of the country, but I think Clan del Golfo is going to to remain as a group, probably not as powerful, probably not as important in terms of the criminal map in Colombia. And this comes to also a question that to, to related to, to the strategy, to the state strategy, and is what is the next step here? You know, in, in a context of fragmentation, what is the next step? Because it seems that the Kimping strategy has no, you know, Kimpings anymore. The Otoniel could be the last huge Kimping in Colombia. And it that doesn't mean the organized crime in Colombia is is going to stop to be important, it's going to stop to be decisive, it's going to stop to perform criminal governance, but it's just a setting in which groups are more fragmented, are more local, and, and that deserves a new strategic assessment. Here's Toby Muse. This puts the war on drugs really under the microscope more than anything, because The war on drugs is always saying, give us more money, give us more resources, and then we can take down these top capos, these top drug lords. That's the definition of success for the war on drugs. So I would say at this point, okay, you've now just taken down. Congratulations. That's a victory for you. No matter which way you look at it, on your own logic, people of the FBI, the DEA, the Colombian police, you have scored a victory. You have told us these victories are the way to win. Okay, now in six months time, let's look and see if this has slowed the flow of cocaine by one second. And if it hasn't, which I suspect it won't, can we finally agree that even in your victories, you are not winning this war on drugs and a new approach is needed? Uh, it, this completely puts the responsibility on those constantly advocating for this model of fighting the war on drugs. With this victory, surely we're going to see some overall permanent victory in the war on drugs, right? You've taken down a huge drug trafficker. And if it doesn't lead to any change in how we fight the war on drugs, the question is why? Then surely this shows the hollowness of this model that we've been fighting. So what of Otoniel now? Well, He's waiting for extradition to the United States, following in the footsteps of those infamous narco-traffickers and some of his family members. 
but since his capture, Otoniel has been talking. He's been talking to the Colombian Special Jurisdiction for Peace, or JEP, which was set up after the demobilization of the FARC in 2016. They basically look into crimes committed during the armed conflict that has plagued Colombia for so long. Anyway, it was during this that Otoniel apparently started to spill the beans on some of those who allegedly worked with the paramilitaries. But in February this year, there was a break-in at the home of one of the commission investigators. And apparently, the unknown robbers were looking for something very specific, a digital recorder and a computer, where a recorded interview with Otoniel from just a couple of days before was being stored. After this theft, the police sat in on interviews, even stopping the proceeds due to concerns that Otoniel was planning to flee. At the time of recording, Otoniel is still awaiting extradition to the United States on charges of drug trafficking. So where does Clandel Golfo go from here? We'll have to wait and see. That's it for this final part of Clan del Golfo, The Fall of Otoniel. I hope you've enjoyed these last few episodes. We'll be back in the next few weeks with another. I'd like to thank Jorge Mantilla, Angela Oyayo, and Toby Muse for speaking to me for this episode. I'd also like to thank our other speakers from the previous episode, Daniel Rico, Luis Fernando Trejos Rosero, Ana Paula Oliveira, and Marcina Hunter. A special thank you goes to Felipe Botero Escobar and Mariana Botero Restrepo. For other podcasts, videos or research into global organized crime, head over to the Global Initiative website, globalinitiative.net. We're also across social media. Just search for the Global Initiative and you'll find us. Remember to rate, review and subscribe to this podcast. This has been Deep Dive from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. I'm Jack Megan Vickers. Thanks for listening.